like. So we've seen a number of helpful insights already. We've seen that a healthy church uh, ought to be committed to the word of God and to the person of Jesus. We've seen that in order for a church to be considered a healthy church, uh, that church must respond correctly to the word of God. Right? Healthy church members respond appropriately to the gospel. They understand the fact that the gospel demands holistic obedience. The church in Thessalonica, as we've seen, is an an example of what a healthy church looks like. They show us the importance of evangelism. Remember in chapter 1 where Paul tells the Thessalonians that as he goes throughout the region of Macedonia and Achaia, he can't He can't go to anyone in the region who has not heard the gospel through these people in the church at Thessalonica. So everywhere he goes, he keeps running into people who have already heard the gospel because of this faithful church. We've also seen that a healthy church is marked by personal ministry. We've seen this uh, in the last couple of weeks, that a, a church, in order for it to function properly, the people of that church must engage in legitimate personal relationships that are oriented around the gospel. Well, one more essential element of a healthy church that we are going to see tonight is related to the church's understanding of God's will. A healthy church has a proper understanding of God's will. You know, some of the most important aspects of Christianity are sadly some of the most confusing elements of Christianity. Sometimes we are most confused about some of the most significant aspects of following Jesus. If I were to ask a follower of Christ the question, what is God's will? I think many Christians would be somewhat at a loss of words. When you hear, what is God's will, how how do you respond? Maybe you've heard a sermon on finding God's will. Maybe you've read a book on finding God's will. And yet, I would imagine, even if you have heard a sermon or, or even maybe read a book, you may still find yourself somewhat confused on this topic. Well, I think that there are reasons for the confusion. Part of the, the confusion stems from the fact that there is so much noise surrounding this topic. There are so many competing voices. There are so many different people out there trying to tell you something different about what God's will actually is and how to find it. There's so many people giving personal insights on, on their own experience of seeking and trying to find God's will. You'll hear people tell long stories about books they've read on finding God's will. There's so many voices and so many of these voices are conflicting And that's part of the problem. And yet, I think there's a solution. And I think the solution is actually fairly simple. A lot of of all of the noise surrounding this topic is really silenced when you look at our passage that we're going to discuss tonight. We're in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. Let me begin by reading our passage Uh, If you're not there already, I would encourage you to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Here's what we see. Finally, uh, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and 
to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Notice the simplicity of God uh, of Paul's words here when it comes to finding God's will. One of the most debated questions in Christianity, finding God's will, is so simple here in this passage. Paul's simple answer to the question of how can we find God's will is this, be sanctified. You want to know God's will? Seek to obey the teachings of scripture. You want to know how to find God's will? Seek to be holiness or to to be holy. That is God's will for your life. Look what we see again in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you've received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul's words are clear. You want to find God's will, walk in a way that pleases God. Follow the instructions that we have been given in God's word through Christ's apostles. This is God's word for our life. Be sanctified. So let me just boil this down. Doing God's will is as simple as following the clear teachings of scripture. If you want to know God's will, then read God's word and strive to obey what God says. We often think about God's will in terms of what God wants me to do next. We're often asking the question of, of where, where, where does God want me to go? What job does he want me to pursue? Which school does he want me to attend? We typically ask the question of God's will when it comes to making big, massive, pivotal decisions in life. Which decision would God have me make? I want to be in his will. But Paul's point here is that we need to seek God's will in our everyday decisions. Paul's point is that in order to pursue God's will and find God's will, we must begin with our own sanctification. Now, I think it's important for us to to think about this. I want to flesh this out a little bit because I, I realize there are probably a lot of questions, even as I'm explaining this. Let me just say that there is a difference between God's revealed will in Scripture and God's will of decree. 
God's revealed will in Scripture is different than God's will of decree. So just fair warning. We're going to get a little bit technical here in the next maybe five minutes or so. But I I hope it's straightforward enough and you can follow. One of these wills, the the will of of, God, Uh, God's revealed will in scripture pertains to our responsibilities. This is what we are to do. This is how we are to serve God and and, and follow God. The other will refers to God's sovereign rule over history. God's will of decree is God's rule and reign over all things. When we talk about God's revealed will shown for us in scripture, we're we're referring to like the clear commands that God gives to us. When we're talking about the revealed will that God gives us, uh, it's simply seeking to obey God in everything that we do throughout all all of our days. However, on the other hand, when we're talking about God's will of decree, we're talking about God's reign over history. This is God's providential will. This is the fact that God rules and reigns and decides who is going to rule and reign as his earthly kings. This is the fact that God, he decrees both life and death. This is the fact that God mysteriously rules over calamities like storms and wildfires. And here's the deal though. We often run into all of these confusions about finding God's will when we begin to conflate or confuse God's providential will from his revealed will. We often ask God to reveal his will, and yet what we typically mean is we want God to reveal his will of decree. But that's not how God works. God is not going to tell us his plans in a detailed manner for history. He's not going to tell us his detailed plans for the future of our lives. He doesn't reveal to us his will of decree. He is not going to tell us what he plans to do throughout the course of history. Instead, God gives us his revealed will. He tells us how we are to obey him in our everyday circumstances. He tells us what we are to do in order to please him with our lives. That's what Paul means here when he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. God is telling us how we are to live our lives on a daily basis, especially when it comes to making everyday moral decisions. He's telling us how to live our lives so that we might be holy. Now, you might be wondering though, okay, what about the big decisions then? Right? How do I make that choice? If God's not going to tell me which choice to make, how do I make the, the large decisions? What, what about the job choices that are in front of me? What, what about choosing a school? What about the, the choice that, that happens to be in front of me uh, regarding to my, my housing or my finances? Right? These are good questions. Uh, but in these questions, we need to point out we're, we're kind of walking a bit of a tightrope between God's revealed will and God's will of decree. Here's, here's why I say that. When we want God to reveal which decision we want to make, we're kind of asking for both God's revealed will and God's will of decree. We, we want God's revealed will. We're, we're trying to figure out whether or not this major decision in our life is 
is one that's going to lead to morality. Like we want to please God in the, the job we choose or the school we, we choose to go to. Like we want to please God in those decisions. And yet at the same time, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes we, we actually want God to just tell us the future. We just want God to show us which decision should I make so that things are going to go perfectly for me? Which choice should I make so that, that my life might turn out to be peachy, right? That's, that's what we kind of want secretly in our hearts, right? Is it not? But again, that's not how God operates. He's not going to just tell us the future. He's not going to simply say, this is the decision you need to make if you want everything to go smoothly. Instead, God gives us his revealed will and he says, pursue this, be holy, seek to to follow me in everything you do, strive to be sanctified. And here's, here's the truth though, as we are sanctified, as God helps us to become more and more holy through the power of his Holy Spirit, we we are given wisdom to make the big decisions in life and to make those decisions well. As God makes us holy, we are able to make a better choice when it comes to the the pivotal choices in life. So let me give you some examples of what this might look like. Uh, For me, when I was thinking about which school to go to after I graduated from high school, I had just become a Christian, and I had a couple of different options in front of me, and I was trying to figure out which school to go to. For me, in high school, I I struggled a lot with partying. Like that was a sin, like different, all the, all the sins associated with partying, right? Those were things that I struggled with. And so as I was trying to make a decision on which school to go to, there was this temptation in my mind. To, if, I, if I go to this school that's known for partying, I'm going to put myself in a bad situation. Does God tell us which school to go to? No. God doesn't tell us which school to go to. However, as we are sanctified, often we're able to make better choices. For me, the better choice was to not go to the university and to stay at the community college because I was in a local church there and I was able to be surrounded by a good community. And so even though God does not say, thou shalt not go to that university, nor do I think it's bad to like go to a university known for partying, uh, I think for certain people in certain, certain circumstances, that may not be the best decision for them because of the temptations that they may face when they arrive there. Let me give you another scenario. Imagine you graduate from school and now you have the choice between two jobs. Right? You have two jobs to choose from. And maybe you've, you've been growing, you're surrounded by godly uh, people in a church. They're helping you process the two jobs in front of you. And as you're growing and seeking God's will, seeking to be sanctified, and you have this choice in front of you, and you think, you know what? The more I think about this, the more I'm just kind of convinced both are good decisions. You go and you talk to mentors of you in the church, and they're telling you, yeah, you know what? I think both are good options. And it just looks as though you have two good options in front of you. And now, the thing is, is in those sorts of situations, we can find ourselves almost paralyzed. Which do I choose? I want to be in God's will. And both of these seem to be good things. How do I know whether or not I'm going to be in God's will? Especially when you start doing all the pros and cons and seems to be evenly split. 
Everyone you talk to says, ah, both look like a good decision. What do you do in that situation? To be honest, you just have to choose. At the end of the day, you just need to be honest with yourself and if both look like good decisions, just decide which do I want to do more. It's as simple as that. You know, when there is a, a, a decision in front of us that is morally neutral, it's neutral when it comes to pursuing holiness, choose what you want. Which socks do I put on in the morning, right? Choose whichever you want. Which shoes do I put on? I mean, okay, maybe, maybe some of those shoes you ought not to wear. I don't know. But by and large, choose whichever ones you want to wear. Maybe it's a t-shirt. Maybe one of those is immoral. You shouldn't wear the immoral shirt. But maybe it's two fair, fair shirts. They're fine. They're both blank tees. One's red, one's gray. It doesn't really matter. Do I choose the job here or the job there? This one, I could be closer to family. This one, I can make a little bit more money. Doesn't, does it really matter? In a sense, it doesn't. In a sense, God is going to be with you no matter which you decide. And honestly, sometimes even when you make the immoral choice... Let's be honest, God doesn't just leave you there. If you make an immoral choice, God is gracious and he's going to be with you even in that choice. It's not as though if you make a wrong decision and follow your your sinful tendencies and make a bad choice, you end up pursuing your own desires and, and you're not pursuing things in holiness. Well, it's not as though God just is going to leave you abandoned somewhere out in the desert and you're never going to be able to get back on God's track for your life. Again, that's not the way God works. Here's the thing, though. Instead of being so concerned with these big, pivotal decisions in life, what we need to actually do is we need to pursue God's revealed will. At the end of the day, big decisions in in life, they only come every so often. Sanctification, however, takes place every day in our decisions to choose whether or not we are going to serve Christ or not. So here, in the, the rest of our passage, what we see is that Paul begins to get very practical. Here he begins to explain what it looks like to pursue sanctification. Now Paul begins to explain what it looks like to pursue God's will and be sanctified. Here's what he says. Sanctification includes putting off sexual immorality and putting on brotherly love. You'll notice that uh, sanctification in this passage, it really shows up in two generic ways. There is one side of the, pas- uh, of the passage that is calling us to avoid certain behaviors, namely sexual immorality. And then there's the other side of the passage, which is, which is a positive sense, where, where God is calling us to put on other actions. In other words, put on brotherly love. There's a negative aspect and a positive aspect, a put-off aspect and a put-on aspect. The first side of the equation that we're going to find here is the negative side. If we want to pursue God's will and be sanctified, then we need to put off sexual immorality. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. 
as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Right? The, the calling here is straightforward. There's a general sense in which all Paul is saying here is that we need to recognize that we have to put off sexual immorality. Paul is telling us here, God is telling us here, that the church should look different when it comes to matters pertaining to sex. The church understands sex in a different manner when compared to the way the world understands sex. The way the church practices sex will be different from the way that the world practices it. And this is essential for us to understand. There is a chasm between the Christian practice of sexuality and the world. This is why God warns us so much about these temptations throughout the pages of Scripture. I mean, at least in this passage, the very first command related to our sanctification that God gives us is to abstain from sexual immorality. I started looking through the New Testament and trying to find a single book in the New Testament that does not address the topic of sexual immorality, and I think you'll be hard-pressed to find one. This shouldn't surprise us. God knows that we desperately need to understand what he has to say about sexual immorality. We desperately need clarity. I mean, think about it. We are constantly inundated with the world's perspective on sexuality. It is almost as though we are steeped in a worldly vision of sex every single day. There's an ever-present temptation to allow pornography or Hollywood or music or Instagram or, or even things like the news to influence the way we understand sexuality. Now, it may not seem like it at the moment, but when you are in a room and you are watching a sex scene from a movie... In a sense, in that moment, you might as well be sitting in a classroom. The director is teaching you something about sex, the way he wants you to understand sex. He is teaching you about the way love relates to sexuality. When you see a certain image on on Instagram, that influencer, or whoever, whoever it may be, is actually trying to teach you something whether or not they even realize it. They are trying to teach you about the nature of sex and love. When you decide to watch pornography, seriously, you might as well be sitting in the middle of a lecture hall because in that moment, even though it does not feel like it, your mind is being shaped and molded in order to think a certain way about sex. Did you realize that the porn industry, that Hollywood, that social media, that the music industry... uh, they all have the corner market on informing the masses about what we are to think about sex and what, is to, what it is to look like. The, the Gentiles are eager to teach you. As this passage says, notice this. Sexuality, according to the world, is in direct opposition to God's understanding of sexuality. Notice this passage shows us that. It shows us that a Christian's understanding of sex ought to look far different from a Gentile's understanding of it. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The reason there is a differentiation between these these different understandings of sexuality is because the world does not know God. With a knowledge of God comes a new understanding of sexuality. So think about what we saw last week when we talked about brotherly love. Love is inseparable from holiness. We saw that last week. True biblical love is always geared towards seeing the other person grow in holiness. When you love someone, you are seeking that person's holiness. Well, that is not the way the world understands sex or love. Our society constantly wants to remove the entire concept or category of holiness from the marriage bed or from the bedroom altogether because, right, marriage isn't that important in the world. The Bible calls sex a part of holiness. And yet when, when someone tries to rip holiness away from sexuality, we call that sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is in direct contrast with holiness. These two, these two things, these two entities are running in the exact opposite direction. We see this in verse 7. You can do one of two things. You either pursue holiness or you pursue sexual immorality. Verse 7. For God has not called you to impurity, but in holiness. We have the responsibility to forsake sensuality, to forsake impurity, to forsake sexual immorality, and instead pursue holiness. But I get it. That is not a simple task. Like I said, the world is constantly trying to inundate us with a message. That is certain. The world constantly is trying to bombard us with its message about sex. And here's something that we all know. I think no one's going to argue with this, but the world thinks that sex should not be contained. The sexualization of our culture is prevalent. It is everywhere. Wherever you happen to look, there is a message, a steady message in front of you, staring you in the face. The culture would have you believe that Pornography ought to be normal in your daily life. Lust need not be mastered. And so sex is everywhere. From the billboard to the TV screen, wherever you look, essentially. And for this reason, we need to undergo an intense form of sanctification in this area of our lives. We need to be transformed. And so we have to ask the question, how? How do we pursue holiness in a highly sexualized culture? I think first off, I think you probably already realize this, but we need to constantly remind ourselves of the fact that our society is trying to feed us a message that sexual immorality is absolutely normal. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing to condemn about it. So like I said, the billboards, the movies, the social media, they all contribute to this message and we have to be in full understanding of that reality. We have to be aware. Second, we need to learn to recognize when our own hearts begin to be lured in sexual temptation. I think you need to spend some time diagnosing your own heart and trying to figure out where, where the genesis of your sexual temptations comes from. What, what's at the, the beginning of that? What causes it? 
What, what habits do you have that feed into those temptations? If you are going to go to war against sexual immorality, then we must be aware of where those temptations are coming from within our own hearts. We must be well in tune with what's going on within our hearts so that we might know where the triggers are around us that are going to lead us down that path. Third, and most importantly, we need to turn to Christ when temptation arises. And that might just sound like like a nice word of encouragement that practically means nothing. So here's what I mean by that. We need to turn to, turn to Christ by remembering that the gospel, first off, condemns such behavior. Sexual immorality is so serious that Christ died for it. We need to recognize that the gospel condemns such things. When temptations towards these, these, these things arise in your heart, you need to remind yourself that Jesus was crucified for that sin. And I think that the recognition of that alone will spur on your desire to fight against those temptations. Next, remember the gospel's message of hope in the face of such sins. Turn to Jesus by reminding yourself that there is hope in the gospel even when those those temptations berate you. When you face temptations, remember the fact that Jesus graciously offers forgiveness through his death and resurrection. When you face temptations, remember the fact that there is forgiveness in Christ and it is unwavering. Finally, when temptation towards sexual immorality comes up, remember the gospel's message that there is power over sin. Look to Jesus by reminding yourself that there is power over sin when temptation arises in your heart. Jesus empowers us to live righteous and upright lives in the present age through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.13, when temptation arises, remind yourself of this verse. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your own ability, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you might be able to stand under it. Remind yourself of Romans uh, 6, verses 5 and 6. For if we have been united with him in a death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. In Jesus, we have power to walk in holiness. In Jesus, we have the ability to say no to temptation when it arises. That may seem like a simple truth, and yet when you really think about it, and you really recognize that every temptation that comes my way, Jesus has actually empowered me to fight against that sin. Every time. And so with that said, as I mentioned before, we need to recognize that this passage is not merely about sexual immorality. That's not the only way that we are to do God's will. That's not the only way that we are going to pursue sanctification. Like I said, there's a put off and there's a put on. Throughout the pages of scripture, we see that pattern and here we see it as well. It is not enough to put off sexual immorality. We need to replace those actions with something else. We need to replace those actions with brotherly love. 
the second side of the equation pertaining to our sanctification in pursuit of God's will is brotherly love. That's the positive side of the equation. According to our passage, if we want to pursue God's will, then we need to be sanctified by pursuing brotherly love. Look at verses 9 through 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Again, Paul is commending this church. They are an example of what a healthy church looks like. You notice we see this over and over again. Like you're already doing this, but I just encourage you to do it more. Right, we see that over and over again in our passage. We see it here uh, in verse 10. Everyone throughout Macedonia is, is receiving your love, your brotherly love, but we encourage you, continue on. Continue to do this. With that said, I want to just point out, isn't it interesting that the contrast to sexual immorality is brotherly love. The correction of the world's misunderstanding of what sex ought to look like is a proper understanding of what love looks like according to God. God shows us that while sexual immorality masquerades as love, it has no part in true biblical love. These two concepts are actually foreign to one another when we consider what Scripture has to say. Sexual immorality is self-serving. It is feelings-oriented. It is pleasure-seeking. Again, it is self-serving. It is feelings-oriented. It is pleasure-seeking. That is the antithesis of what brotherly love is. Brotherly love is not self-seeking. Instead, it is self-sacrificing. Brotherly love is not feelings-oriented. Instead, it is commitment-oriented. Brotherly love is not pleasure-seeking. No, instead, brotherly love seeks to promote holiness in the other person. It's a dedication to that person's holiness in the relationship. As I already mentioned from last week, a healthy church is marked by genuine love throughout the the church members. It's something that every individual within this church is seeking to show towards one another. Biblical love, as we saw last week, is always reconciled with a pursuit of holiness. As we said, throughout Scripture, love and holiness are always placed in tandem. And at the same time, sexual immorality and holiness are always placed in contrast. To show someone love, we need to seek that person's personal holiness. Look at what we see in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. You see, love and holiness cannot be taken apart. Love is not strictly residing within the the realm of the feelings. Nor is love dedicated to oneself. Love is rooted in a commitment towards the good of that other person. No matter if it costs pleasure, no matter if it costs 
comfort, no matter if it costs you your freedom. That's what Christ demonstrated to us. Remember Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, he died for us. That's not self-seeking. That's not pleasure-seeking. That's not a self-orientation. The biblical model of love is presented to us in the person of Jesus. The biblical model of love is that we look to Christ and we see his example. We quit looking to the world in order to understand what love looks like and we look to Jesus because he is the ultimate example. His example is one of self-denial and self-sacrifice. He denied the pleasures of heaven that were rightfully his in order to experience a punishment that was rightfully ours. That's what Christ did in order to show his love. And he did all of that so that we might experience holiness. I need to point out that sacrificial love, experientially now, like on our part, sometimes it might look like Jesus' example of love. You know, there may be times where we have to lay our life down for someone else in order to show that person love. But let's be honest, typically love in its appearance is far less spectacular, right? It's far less impressive. I mean, when we think of the examples of brotherly love that Paul lays out for us in verses 11 through 12, they seem not that impressive. He tells us to demonstrate meaningful brotherly love by living a quiet life, minding your own affairs, working hard. Don't be dependent on other people. You know, that, that, that's not all that impressive. You know, that, that's not going to get a ton of likes on Instagram, showing up at work every week, every day, eight to five. It's not all that impressive. At times, love may look like you dying for someone else, yet far more often almost all the time, love often appears to be a remarkably normal act that's repeated over the long run that impacts those around you. So it might look like you holding a job for a long period of time for the good of your church community, for the good of your family. Biblical love may look like you finishing school for the sake of your future spouse. Biblical love may look like you getting a summer job so that you don't go into a lot of student debt and then you are able to not be a huge burden to your future family down the road. Biblical love might mean you drive a beater instead of driving a car you can't afford. Love may look like you getting a second job helping your parents with their mortgage. Love might look like you moving out of your parents' house so that you don't have to be a burden on them and and use up their resources. Sometimes biblical love is very normal, unimpressive. It's not going to get any likes on Instagram. And yet, that's what Paul is calling us to. He says, live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your own hands. You know, this brings us back to the conversation that we were having about figuring out God's will. When, especially when we have these large decisions to make. The truth is, is that we are often so consumed with finding God's will in the big, pivotal moments of life that we forget doing what God is telling us to do right now 
in this moment. And sometimes those big pivotal decisions may seem way more important. And yet God is telling us that typically the daily, normal, non-pivotal moments in life done over the long haul are going to prove far more important than the big decision that happens once every five, ten years. God is calling us to do his will by resisting the temptation of sexual immorality and showing simple love towards others. That's what it looks like to do God's will. Let's pray.